everybody. What I have in my hand is the holy grail of real estate. It's a purchase contract in the state of New Jersey. If you're looking to buy a house or sell a house, it's absolutely critical that you know the information within this contract. So you want to learn more? Stay tuned. so much for being on the show today. Welcome back. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me back again. I thought it was critical after our last bit of time that we spent together to really review something that's critically important when you're buying and selling a home, which is the purchase contract in the state of New Jersey. And I know you're an expert. Uh, I'm certainly an expert, or I try to be an expert. I mean, you must have looked at thousands of these over the course of time. I have, I have and they've changed over time, and I'm assuming you have the latest version there. I do. I yes, you so, do. Yeah. yes, you do. Yes, you do. You <laughs> do. So, I guess, first of all, the first thing I would say about this is it's a contract. It's a legally binding contract, correct? It is a legally binding contract subject to attorney review. Okay. But when you sign that contract, it is a legally binding contract. Your intent is to purchase the home as per the terms that are listed in the contract. That makes sense, and I think that's important for people to know because you you think about putting an offer in on a house and you're selling, you're signing the purchase and sale contract. If you've been through the process before, it just feels like this automatic thing that you should do. But it's really this is a legal document. It is a legal document, and and it's and over the years it has gotten much longer, and it's got many different provisions in it than it had you know 20 years ago. Um, and so it's important that you do understand what's in there. Um, your your realtor is probably not going to be able to explain all of those terms in there. Um, some of them may apply, some of them may not, but you certainly need to understand it. But it's a good thing we got you here today. Jeff. Yes, thank you. All right, so I'm just going to break down some basics of the purchase and sale contract. So on what would be page one or page two is the sales price of the property, the deposit that you're going to put down, it has it, or the initial deposit, any remaining or additional deposit, and then the amount of money that you're mortgaging. That's kind of page one of the contract. In, in addition to, obviously, the names of the parties mm -hmm. and the property that you're purchasing and or selling. Right. Um, and those are material terms to the contract that are necessary to be in there for it to be a binding contract in New Jersey. Okay. So you need the parties' names have to be in there and then the terms of it as far as loan amount and purchase price and everything like that? Correct. Now, that brings up a good point. Are there other parts of the contract that do not have to be filled out, which it still makes it a binding contract? Well, the material terms, parties, price, closing date, mm -hmm. inclusions, uh, things that are included or excluded in the contract, those are all material terms. Okay. And they need to be completed. There are other portions of the contract that are not necessarily a material term and would not invalidate the contract. Okay, understood. Now, I know with the deposit, speaking to that for a second, and we've spoken about this in the past, you have what's considered your earnest money deposit. Yes. Which is the money that you put down once you're out of attorney review, correct? That's correct. And, and, and sometimes when we talk about deposit, and when I talk to clients about a deposit, they think that it's the whole amount of money that they're taking out of pocket, mm -hmm. less the, the mortgage, for closing. The deposit is just the binding part of the, the contract that actually says, okay, I'm interested in buying this, pro this property. 
here's my promise that I'm going to move forward. Mm -hmm. And then there's a deposit depending on what the terms are agreed to. So and if something falls apart, how do I get my money back? Well, that depends on why it fell apart. Okay. Um, there's a number of things that could happen. Uh, there are contingencies in the contract for the buyer. There are some contingencies for the seller. And if those contingencies are not met, then the contract is terminated and the money is refundable. Mm -hmm. um, so I know a lot of times clients are concerned that they're not going to get their deposit back, but the contract terms state that deposit is refundable if these contingencies are not satisfied. Makes sense. So in today's crazy market, I want to bring up uh, certain things that you see on the purchase contract. And you've spoken before about uh, the inspection issues. And we could go through that again, or you could check out last week's uh, show that we did. But the when you look at the actual inspection issues, those are generally going to be major issues in, in a market like the one that we have today. Yeah, for the for the most part, because of the challenges and the challenges with inventory, and um, the market and the demand for properties, you're going to probably most likely be limited to major uh, deficiencies in the property, uh, whether it be structural, environmental, mechanical. Um, and depending on the terms of the contract, that will dictate what those limitations are. Um, there are things that are always not grounds for inspections or for termination under inspection contingencies, things such as maintenance, um, things that are past their life expectancy. So if the air conditioning system is 25 years old, but it's working properly, you can't say I want a new air conditioning system mm -hmm. because it's working. It's not defective. The age alone is not a defect. I have a question for you about that. Okay, so we have the air conditioning system and it's the middle of January. Mm -hmm. How do we test it? That's, that's a good question, Greg. And we have those kinds of things. We have pools that are not open in January. Um, and the problem with that is because we live in the Northeast, we don't have the ability to test those things. And if it's below a certain temperature, you can't test the air conditioning. So we get a representation from the seller that it worked when it was last used and hope that it's credible. Um, okay, so, but there's no real liability, right? Once you close on that property, the only take the seller's word for it. Yeah, the only liability is if you could prove that the seller fraudulently misled you or misrepresented the condition of that air conditioning. For instance, it didn't work last summer, and they knew it didn't work, and it had a leak of Freon or some, some other reason why it was defective, then you would, could have a claim after closing mm -hmm. against the seller if you could prove that they knew about this defect and failed to disclose it, because there is an obligation of the seller to disclose all known defects in the property to the buyer. Now, do you really see people going back after those types of things, or just becomes too cost-intensive to do it? Um, we've had occasion where we do. We have clients who call, and it's something that's serious. Generally, if it's something minor, they're not going to go back and spend money on litigation. Uh, but typically, the way it works is uh, I'm contacted. The air conditioning system's not working. They knew about this. We spoke to the neighbor. It was a problem last summer. Okay, let's send a letter to the seller's attorney and see if we can get some resolution to this. Mm -hmm. And Nine times out of ten, there'll be some kind of agreement that'll come forward by the seller. They'll give some kind of a credit to allow for the buyer to um, to have that air conditioning system repaired or replaced. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, there's, again, why you have to work with a real estate attorney. You have relationships in the industry, and you know what to do. Correct. Correct. Abs <laughs> abs absolutely. Absolutely. I get calls sometimes two years after closing 
about issues. Now, typically, two years after closing is a little long, but we do field those calls. Sure. So. Jeff, my toilet's not flushing, and I closed up my house two years ago. Well, my roof is leaking, and <laughs> okay, let's call a roofer then, I guess. <laughs> so, yes. All right, so we have the inspection end of it. I, I want to talk about an 800-pound gorilla that we're hearing all the time right now as far as appraisal waiver is concerned. Yeah. And you and I have been around long enough to know that waiving your appraisal, that's not something that's done in a balanced market, generally speaking. And now when you waive an appraisal, that really means that you're waiving the right to renegotiate the price of the home in the event that the appraisal comes in for less than what you're paying for the property. Yeah, and that's, and that's something that has come about much more frequently since, uh, since COVID, mm -hmm. um, since the market has tightened up the way it has. And so what an appraisal waiver is, is the buyer agrees that they will come up with additional money if the house under appraises, if it doesn't appraise for the contract price, because the lender is only going to lend you based on, as you know, Greg, okay. based on the lower appraised the value. Price or the appraised value. Right. So if the appraised value is much lower than the contract price and you agree to waive the appraisal, then you're going to have to come out of pocket that additional money or you're going to be in breach of contract. Mm -hmm. we, do have, we do have modified appraisal waivers. And what's that? Would you put a floor on it? Yes. So we would put a floor on it. Typically, we would, I'd have a conversation with the client. We'd kind of use real numbers and say, okay, well, if the home appraises for this much less than the contract price, you're going to have to come out of pocket an additional whatever the amount is. Mm -hmm. And do you have that money? Uh, either the answer is yes, we have that money, we're okay with it, or no, we don't have that money. And then we find that, that point where they're comfortable and say, okay, yes, we have an additional 20000 or mm -hmm. 30000 whatever the number is. And we will put a floor in and say, we'll, we'll agree to the appraisal waiver as long as the property appraises for at least whatever that number is. See, I think that's a great way to handle it because the complete waiver of the appraisal, there's just an unknown associated with it, yeah. depending on what's going on in the marketplace, where at least you can have that upfront conversation with the buyer to say, hey, are you comfortable with 20000 and can we cap it at that? Yeah, and it's really important to have that conversation yeah. because most of the time buyers... The way it works is you're in this very frenzied uh, negotiation and maybe there's other people bidding and, and you're putting in terms just so you can win the, the bid. And then afterwards we go, oh, wait a second. Maybe I truly didn't understand what that meant. So it's important to have that conversation because it really comes down truly to dollars and cents. And sure. if, you, if you don't have the money. You know, yeah, and understanding what all the options are, whether or not you're bringing that money to the closing or you're speaking to your mortgage lender to figure out, hey, if the property does come in, for less, the, the appraisal comes in less from what I'm paying for, is there an opportunity for me to finance it into the transaction, which can be the case as well. Yes. And there's a conversation we have on a regular basis with the buyer. Yes, correct. So, yeah, yeah. But I, I love setting the floor on it because then we know exactly what can, we can expect a worst case scenario. And the buyer has a comfort level because now they know that it's not never ending. It's not, oh my God, it under appraised by 50,000, I don't have the money. Mm -hmm. We've had that conversation, we've educated them. And now they're comfortable because they know what the bottom line could be. What's your opinion on waiving the appraisal? I hate it. Yeah. I think it's, you know, unfortunately it's a necessary evil. But I hate it because, um, well, you know this, Greg. I mean, the problem with appraisals is that it's very subjective. It's very subjective. And uh, you and I could be appraisers. We could both go in and we can use different comps and we could come up with a different value. And the whole deal turns on that. 
So it's sad that we, I, we understand the bank needs to have a value so they can base their, their lending on it, but it just puts the buyer to kind of a disadvantage. Yeah, it's just an unfortunate that's where we're at in the, in the market. Yes. Yeah. But to your point, Jeff, I mean, something that's, that could be critical right now, making sure that you can obtain the house, because you can have other people that are willing to waive that appraisal. A hundred percent, yeah. It's, we got a limited amount of ca- limited amount of cash for some reason in New York, Jersey, New Jersey area. Yes, yes. I don't know what everyone does for work, but people are willing to. They're willing to waive. And listen, sometimes I I explain this to them, and the and the buyer is willing to risk that exposure and is willing to roll the dice and say, "We'll do a full appraisal. We want the house." Sure. Well, a full appraisal waiver. Sorry. And you know what? Just to, to because it's such a popular topic, I want to go a little bit deeper. When you waive your appraisal contingency, just so everyone's clear, that doesn't mean that you're waiving having an appraisal done. The bank's still going to require an appraisal to be done to the property. To to Jeff's point in our conversation, is you just may waive all of your right or part of your right to renegotiate the contract in the event the appraisal comes in lower. That's correct. And and when there isn't an appraisal waiver, mm-hmm. which does still happen, mm-hmm. um, and, the, and the appraisal does come in lower, and it affects the buyer's ability to obtain a mortgage, at that point we can renegotiate with the seller and say the appraisal came in 20000 lower than the contract price. We're not going to be able to get our mortgage because these are the parameters the lender has. We need to renegotiate the price. That brings up a good point, Jeff. So does it, is the caveat with that is it has to put the buyer in a situation where they cannot qualify for the mortgage, or if it comes in twenty thousand dollars lower and I didn't waive my appraisal, can I just renegotiate? No, it has to. It has. So there is language in the contract in in the contract riders that we do. There's language in the contract that says that it has to affect the buyer's ability to obtain a mortgage. So if they're doing a conventional eighty twenty mortgage, and they put down forty percent mm-hmm. and it underappraises, it still doesn't affect their ability. They're not coming out of pocket additional money. Right. That's the only time. Ahead. And it's a math equation. You're just dividing the amount that you're borrowing divided by whatever that appraised value is. It comes up with a ratio. Yes. And that's how you how you figure it out. You know, in the purchase, moving forward on the purchase contract, there's a spot in there for the type of loan that you're taking out: conventional, FHA, VA. Once you've selected it on the purchase contract, is it rigid? Can you change it? It it you know it, that's a that's a really good question. Um, it's rigid in in one respect and not in the other respect. Mm-hmm. So if you check off conventional, right. and you actually are going for an FHA loan, um, that could affect. It could be the property's not qualified for an FHA loan. It could change the, um, the the percentage parameters. So if you were to check off conventional, but you go for an FHA loan and you are denied an FHA loan, the seller could say. You didn't comply with the terms of the contract. You were supposed to go conventional, and you would have been approved for a conventional loan. So if, if we are going to change that, if the buyer says, we're going to go from conventional FHA, we have to get consent of the seller before we do that. Now, are you in breach of contract if you switch from conventional to FHA, unbeknownst to the seller? You could be in breach. It wouldn't be a breach mm-hmm. if you were approved. So as long as you're approved and we can get to the closing table, and we close, the seller's not going to care. It's only if you're denied based on the change in the mortgage type that then you can have a situation. Understood. Yeah, that that's, provides a lot of clarity on it. Yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Because you hear that. You know, I'll take mortgage transactions for people. We pre-approve them with 20% down my conventional mortgage. They decide that they want to go with a different type of mortgage, and we make the change for them. 
And I was always always wondering whether or not that put them in any type of breach. It, it could conceivably, absolutely. Okay. okay, well thanks for clarifying that, Jeff. Jeff, we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna come back, review some other important aspects of the purchase contract, and then also talk about something that people really wanna know is, how do I get out of the contract <laughs> if, if I needed to? So we'll be right back at you. Jeff Lehman, Greg Wareham, we'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back, everyone. Greg Wareham, Attorney Jeff Lehman. Jeff, in the contract, there's some provisions in there as to what's included in the sale. What type of items are generally included in the sale? So most of the time, uh, the seller is including the standard appliances, washer, dryer, refrigerator, dishwasher. Um, sometimes they include other things. Mm -hmm. um, they could be some personal property that they want to include. Typically, lenders do not want to see personal property in a contract because it's not real estate. Mm -hmm. And they're lending on real estate. So if personal property is being negotiated between the parties as included, there's generally some terms that are indicated the value of the personal property is zero. Um, so that it has no effect on the purchase price of the real estate. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, we've run into some situations, especially at the New Jersey Shore, where houses can, can come fully, fully furnished. Fully furnished, yes. And when they're fully furnished, you've got to be really clear that there's no financial consideration for those items. Correct. Because believe it or not, everybody, a mortgage company is not going to finance a sofa. So yeah. it has to be <laughs> real estate. That is true. So we've got to be clear on that. Now, also, there's a lead-based disclosure on their on the right. contract as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, the lead bait, that goes back to, uh, I believe it's 1978, anything built prior to 1978, they use lead-based paint. And so there's a disclosure to tell prospective buyers that there's a possibility that there's lead-based paint uh, in the on the property, in the property. And what, in which, you know, we see it on some, obviously some older homes, candidly, uh, but a lot of new construction, never gonna have to even worry about Correct, that, correct. correct. What, at the end of the contract, there's some contractual provisions where it seems like it's an area where you can just write what you want in there. What type of things do you see written in there? Yeah, that's uh, Article 43 at the end. It says additional contractual provisions. And that's where you would see some of these terms, some of these limitations on inspections, mm -hmm. uh, the appraisal waivers, possibly language for a post-closing occupancy for the seller, which is called a use and occupancy agreement. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some disclosure in there that some appliances as is because it's not, they know it's not working and they're telling the buyer that it's not working and it's not subject to inspection rights. So that would be the place where all of these uh, atypical um, terms would be included. What's the craziest thing that you've ever seen? Oh God, I've <laughs> seen some crazy things. We've seen some great, we've seen some farm animals included and... Um, I mean, are we talking how, cows, horses, what are we talking? Pigs, chickens, <laughs> yeah, 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 chicken coops and, um, you know, some of, we have a lot of farmland in New Jersey and there are yeah. properties that have livestock. Um, they're entitled to certain tax exemptions as a result of having that livestock, so that may right, be the attraction. Sense. If I'm buying something with a chicken coop and I want chickens, like I want the chickens, it's yeah. the deal. I was just talking to somebody last week about, um, you know, typically you see the chicken coop and, and the, the equipment and stuff included, but then the, this particular buyer wanted the chickens included as well. So okay. I guess they had some plans for... No but, financial consideration though for the chickens. <laughs> You're <laughs> not financing chickens, chickens. <laughs> correct. All right, Jeff, now the million dollar question and things people really wonder is, 
if there, how do how does the contract get broken? And, and I want to be clear even before you answer it. So you can't just get out of a contract once you're in a certain period or space in that contract. So I can't be a week from closing, buying a house, saying, I don't want to buy it anymore, or I don't want to sell it anymore. But what are some of the things that you see where someone could actually get out of the contract, and maybe they can't? Well, I mean, the, the obvious things are obviously the contingencies, the inspection mm -hmm. contingency, the financing contingency. Um, if those can't be satisfied, so if inspection issues can't be resolved or if the buyer can't get a mortgage, those are obvious ways to get out of the contract. Mm -hmm. But I think you're more, you're, you're gearing this question up more for what happens if those contingencies have been satisfied Correct. and we're a week before. I just went out of the deal. Jeff, I don't want to buy the house. Yep. And, I, and I, I get those calls a lot, not too many times, but we get them. And, you know, the, the conversation that we have is, you have a binding contract. You signed this contract. And then we'll go into what happens if you breach the contract, because that's what you're doing. I don't want to go forward. I'm going to breach the contract. What happens to my deposit? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the confusion is that sometimes people think if you breach, you automatically lose your deposit. And that's not in reality what happens. Okay. What happens is the seller has an obligation so let's say we have a buyer that said, I don't want to go forward. I let the seller's attorney know we're not going forward. Okay, there'll be some letters back and forth. You're in breach of contract. We're going to hold your deposit until we resell the property. And that is the seller's obligation is to mitigate their damages. They have to relist the property and they have to try to find, find another buyer. Mm -hmm. If they find another buyer that's either paying the same amount or more than what the existing contract is, well, then in essence, there's no damages. Mm -hmm. So therefore, the deposit will get released and that buyer will, will be whole. Mm -hmm. If they either don't sell the property for the same amount or if they don't sell it for more than what the contract is, and or it takes three, four, five, six months to sell the property, well, now there's carrying expenses, which can be considered damages as well. Mm -hmm. So that buyer could be liable for the difference in the purchase price and also whatever the carrying costs are. So for instance, if the new contract is $20,000 less than the contract that we just breached, they could be liable for 20,000 in addition to whatever the carrying costs are for the delay in the closing. In the carrying costs on the property that they're looking to sell. Because what's popping into my mind is someone could have bought another house. So I've already purchased this other house. We're about to close on this existing home and now the buyer is trying to pull out of the deal. Well, there's real financial liability for me to carry both mortgages. Absolutely. And it's going to put that seller in a very difficult position sure. because now they're going to be possibly in breach of their contract to purchase unless they have a contingency in there for a home sale, mm -hmm. which hopefully they do. But in, in essence, there will be damages in that situation. And the damages don't have to be limited to the deposit. If you only put a $10,000 or $20,000 deposit and the damages are $50,000, mm -hmm. you could be liable for the $50,000. Now, I will tell you, practically, these things usually get negotiated. Okay. And unless somebody has really sustained a huge damage, the deposit is used to negotiate the damages and to allow that buyer to alleviate the breach of contract. That makes perfect sense. Well, thanks for clarifying on the seller's side of it as well, Jeff. Like, what's the practical side of that? In reality, if a seller really wants out of the deal, most buyers are not going to litigate. Um, it costs them money, it costs them time. They're probably going to go out there and try to find another house. And so the sellers 
can walk away from a deal like this, practically speaking. Now, we don't, we don't advise them to do that because obviously they are in breach of contract and they do uh, have the risk of that buyer suing them mm -hmm. for damages and for specific performance. But in reality, like I said before, I, I haven't seen that example happen in the 30 plus years of doing this. Do you see a lot of lawsuits the other way? Um, not really. I mean, we, we more so. Things can be worked out, though. Yeah, it's, listen, anything that deals with money can be worked out. So I've had, I've had sellers say, I want out, and then we negotiate maybe reimbursement of the buyer's expenses for inspections and appraisals and, and attorney's fees. Um, so that kind of is a way to make the buyer feel a little bit better because now at least they didn't lose their out-of-pocket expenses. So that is a way to kind of negotiate from the seller's side if the seller is looking to breach the contract. Um, from the buyer side, we do we do have obviously these these situations where we're negotiating damages from the deposit. You know, and I'd probably point out too from the buyer's side, one contingency that's always in place is your mortgage contingency if you are using a mortgage to purchase the home. So if you already get denied for a loan, you always can get out of the contract, correct? Correct, correct. It's um, that is part of your financing contingency, mm -hmm. and if you are denied for legitimate reasons. Um, and you provide us with a mortgage denial letter from your lender, then those are grounds for you to get your deposit back and terminate the contract. You know, and the most critical part of all of this for everyone out there is to just understand you really need to negotiate everything up front, right? Yeah. You have yeah. to work it through the attorney review process and the inspection period on everything, Jeff. You know, if there's an issue going on with the property, you want to be able to settle things at that time. Don't wait to the tail end of the process if you feel as though there's an issue. Yeah, it's, it's, listen, I, unfortunately, a lot of times, by the time the contract gets to me, there have been uh, terms negotiated mm -hmm. or not negotiated. And then it's much harder during a turn of review to go back on something than if you had agreed to it initially. Mm -hmm. Because especially in this market as a buyer, um, sellers kind of have a little bit of a hold and they'll just say, we have another offer and you're changing the terms of the contract. And we've had that happen. Mm -hmm. So it is important to be upfront with the terms know the market you're in, obviously surround yourself with the proper professionals to guide you and get you to the closing because it's really important to have a real estate attorney sure. um, who practices that, that, does real estate. that does real estate. And has the relationships in the marketplace. Like that's an undervalued portion of it is if someone's working with you, you've been in the industry for 32 years, 33 years. I mean, you know a lot of the people and there's high trust relationships in place that make it easier? I mean, just like any other industry, um, when you know the players on the other side, yeah. it makes it much more amicable when it comes time to negotiate an issue in the, in the deal. And, and I think it really goes a long way uh, if I'm dealing with an attorney on the other side that I know, as opposed to dealing with someone who I don't know or who doesn't practice real estate, it's much more difficult and becomes adversarial, which is not what you want in a real estate transaction. Yeah, it makes sense, Jeff. I just want to come back to one more portion of the contract towards the beginning. At what point in time can the seller no longer show the house to other potential buyers? So the unofficial time frame for when is when you conclude attorney review. Mm -hmm. Now, it's certainly possible for someone to say, I would like to see that house, and the seller, the, the realtor may take them to see the home, um, and any offers that are made after attorney review are considered backup offers, mm -hmm. but they do need to be presented to the seller. All offers 
All offers, all offers need to be presented to the seller. And that's important for everyone to know. Everything's got to be presented in front of the seller. And is there anything else you think we're missing on the contract that's important to the buyer or the seller side? No, I think, I think we've touched on uh, really the important parts of the contract and the important aspects of a real estate transaction. Um, you know, I think that the most important thing is obviously after finding the proper property and getting the offer accepted is having the right players supporting you. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Jeff. And if you want to reach out to Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Lehman's law firm, you have offices in... Oldbridge and Wall, phone number is 732-634-6744. And of course, email address will probably be on the screen. <laughs> Thanks so much for taking the time, Jeff. I know you're super busy. I appreciate it. Thanks, sir. Right. Thanks Thank for you. having me. Thank Thanks, you. Greg. My pleasure. Yep. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Your Mortgage Process, hosted by Greg Wareham, produced by Greg Wareham and Nick Pavise at The Social Rift, and executively produced by The Social Rift. Thank you again for tuning in, and we look forward to catching up with you next week.